Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we separate the journalistic wheat from the chaff. We sort through the harvest of headlines from the past week and glean those few nuggets that are genuinely worthy of our attention. Here's what we've got on the menu for this week. We begin with All About Africa. Pope Francis today embarks on a six-day apostolic voyage to the Democratic Republic of Congo and to South Sudan. We'll explain why all of this matters. Second, making headlines again, Pope Francis gives another exclusive interview, in this case to the Associated Press, making headlines in the secular world with his comments about the criminalization of homosexuality and, in intra-Catholic terms, about the synodal way in Germany. We'll unpack both of those points. Third, on to Orlandi. After the Vatican, the Italian Parliament has now announced plans to open its own investigation of the disappearance of the Vatican girl. We'll bring you the latest on that front. Fourth, more trouble with the trial. The Vatican's trial of the century lumbers along, announcing a new slate of witnesses desired by the defense. We'll explain why one of them could be the key to the whole shooting match. And finally, a delicious dynamic in the Diocese of Allentown, Pennsylvania, my favorite, by far, Catholic fundraising exercise in the world. I'll break down the latest and greatest. That's what we've got this week, so please stick around. Crux wishes to thank our advertising sponsor, The Leo House of New York City, for their support of Crux and this episode of Last Week in the Church. Learn more about The Leo House at leohousenyc.com. Okay, everybody, happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, January 31st, in the year of our Lord, 2023. Today, by the time you see this, Pope Francis will already have departed for Kinshasa, that is the capital city in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he will begin a six-day stop in the DRC and then in South Sudan. In South Sudan, he will be joined by two ecumenical partners, Archbishop Justin Welby of Canterbury, leader of the Worldwide Anglican Communion, and the moderator of the Church of Scotland. Now, if you want the details of what the Pope is going to be doing and why his trip to these two countries, both of which have been plagued by violence and internal conflict for years, in the case of Congo, really for decades, I suggest you consult the Crux site that is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, where you will find typically erudite, brilliant, comprehensive, and movingly written setup pieces by Crux's very own Elise Ann Allen, who is actually on the papal plane today covering Francis's voyage. And she will have it covered like saran wrap, ladies and gentlemen, I swear to you. Here today, rather than descending into the details, I just want to give you a sort of big picture sense of why this trip matters. This is Pope Francis's fifth trip to Africa and his third to Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, let me try to put this in context by giving you some numbers, okay? As of today, January 31st, 2023, the five largest Catholic countries in the world in terms of total Catholic population are Brazil, Mexico, the Philippines, the United States, 
in Italy. However, we know that in those countries, as everywhere, a good share of the Catholic population is actually fairly nominal. That is, these are people who might check the Catholic box on a census form, but maybe don't believe, definitely don't go to church, have very little actual contact with the faith. So a better measure, really, of who's actually taking part in the life of the church is probably mass attendance, right? Who actually shows up on Sunday? Well, we actually have new data on that front. The World Values Survey, which is a regular barometer of values around the world in about 100 countries around the world that has been taken since 1981. It's based in Stockholm. Just released its most recent data set, and we have percentages for mass attendance and Catholic populations in various countries around the world. So if we take that data and we apply it to overall Catholic population, here's the top five list in terms of Catholics who actually show up for Mass on Sunday. First place, the Philippines, 47 million Catholics. Second place, Mexico, 45.6. Third place, Democratic Republic of the Congo, 37.5. Fourth place is Nigeria, 30.5. Fifth place is Uganda at 28.2 million. In other words, three of the top five countries in terms of people who actually show up for Mass on Sunday are in Sub-Saharan Africa. This is because the Mass attendance rate in Sub-Saharan Africa is just phenomenally higher than any place in the rest of the world. Leading the pack in terms of the weekly Mass attendance rate is Nigeria, where 94% of people, of Catholics, report that they go to Mass at least once a week. I want to repeat that. 94%. You know what it is in Poland? Ultra-Catholic Poland, 52%. In Italy, ultra-Catholic Italy, 34%. In the United States, before COVID, it was about 25 to 27%. Post-COVID today, American, about 19 or so percent of American Catholics say they physically go to Mass once a week. Another 5% or so say they watch Mass at least once a week on TV or on the Internet or something like that. Point is, Africans are overwhelmingly more likely to show up on Sunday than any place else on earth. Let me just look for another frame of reference. Congo and Nigeria, the two most populous nations in Africa. Those two countries alone, more Catholics go to Mass on Sunday than in all of Europe and North America combined. Put another one. The two largest Catholic countries in the world right now in terms of population are Brazil and Mexico. More Catholics go to church on Sunday in Congo in Nigeria than in Brazil and Mexico. More Catholics go to church on Sunday in Africa than in all of Latin America. You know, for years, we have been accustomed to saying that Africa is the future of Catholicism. Well, if you look at the numbers, Africa isn't the future. Africa is the present, and it's been the present for quite a while. We all know that in terms of setting the tone in the church, right, generating vocations to the priesthood and religious life, generating lay missionaries, lay volunteers. Basically, in terms of doing the things you need to do to keep a church running, those people who actually show up every Sunday punch well above the weight. They're the ones who really determine what the faith feels like, what it tastes like, what it looks like, and so on. And by that standard, Africa is the place where that is happening today. 
In other words, if you want to understand Catholicism in our time, right now, not in some hypothetical future, but right now, if you want to understand the warp and woof of the Catholic Church, you have to have your eyes on Africa. And that is the genius of this week, ladies and gentlemen. It provides us with a papal spotlight on the church in Africa. So play, pay close attention. This isn't an African story this week, folks. This is a Catholic story. And if you're Catholic, this is about you. All right, second, making headlines again. Pope Francis has given yet another interview. You know, for a pope who, when he was the, the Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires for almost two decades, gave a grand total of five media interviews that we know of. I mean, he gives that many now in a week sometimes as pope. His latest was to our colleague, Nicole Winfield of the Associated Press, and it was a typically brilliant piece of work by Nicole, who is a terrific reporter, well worth reading in its entirety. Lots of interesting nuggets in it. I'm going to concentrate here just on two. The one that made the biggest headlines in the secular world, and then the ones that sort of raised the most eyebrows and set the most tongues wagging inside the Catholic world. Let's begin with the secular nugget. So, one of the questions that Nicole asked the Pope was about the criminalization of homosexuality. And basically, the Pope came out strongly against it. He said the Catholic Church should work against the criminalization of homosexuality. And he made a strong distinction between sin and crime. He said that homosexuality, one presumes he means homosexual behavior, is considered a sin by the Catholic Church. That doesn't mean it has to be a crime. So lots of things are considered sins by the Catholic Church that aren't necessarily crimes under the civil law of various nations. And at a time when in some parts of the world, some parts of Africa, some parts of Eastern and Central Europe, and so on, there is actually a strong press to recriminalize homosexuality. These comments obviously made waves, were welcomed enthusiastically by representatives of the LGBTQ plus community, and on and on. Now, just a little bit of context about this. Whatever you think about what the Pope had to say in this AP interview, it should be noted this is not new. In 2008, when the United Nations was considering adopting a resolution opposed to the criminalization of homosexuality, the Vatican actually opposed the text of that resolution because it thought that the wording of it could have been used to criminalize, for instance, refusing to celebrate same-sex marriages or refusing to serve the adoption requests of same-sex couples. But as far as the criminalization of homosexuality was concerned, the Vatican was fully on board. In fact, L'Osservatoire Romano carried an editorial in 2008 saying the teaching of the Catholic Church opposes the criminalization of homosexuality. From that point forward, various Vatican officials, Italian Archbishop Vincenzo Palli in 2013, Ghanaian Cardinal Peter Turkson in 2014, and others, have all publicly come out against the criminalization of homosexuality. Here's potentially the most interesting point. Did you know that the Vatican City State never had to decriminalize homosexuality itself? And the reason is because homosexuality was never a crime in the Vatican City State. When the Vatican City State was created in 1929 as a result of the Lateran Pact, for its penal law, it adopted 
what is known as the Zanardelli Code, the 1889 penal code in Italy, named after Giuseppe Zanardelli, who was the Minister of Justice in the Kingdom of Italy in 1889, went on to become Prime Minister, actually, in the early 20th century. But anyway, he was the jurist who crafted this code. It was considered very progressive for its time. The Zanardelli Code was the first in Europe to acknowledge a right to strike. It introduced parole for criminal sentences. It recognized mental illness as a legitimate exemption from criminal prosecution, and on and on. And it also created no crime of homosexuality. And so the Vatican has never had a crime of homosexuality on its books. Therefore, there was never anything to decriminalize. My point is that this is one of those cases where the Pope said something that did not at all change church teaching or practice but it put an exclamation point on it. It may have been the first time that lots of people became familiar with what has actually been the position of the Vatican and the Catholic Church for a long time. All right, the inner Catholic thing that was of interest out of this interview were the Pope's comments on the controversial synodal way in Germany. This is a national process of consultation that has been underway for some time now, co-sponsored by the German Bishops' Conference, and the Central Committee of German Catholics, the largest and most powerful lay organization in the country. It is controversial because at various stages in the process, it has looked with favor on all kinds of what you might call liberal reforms, from the ordination of women as priests, to the blessing of same-sex unions, to getting rid of clerical celibacy, at least mandatory celibacy, to giving lay people a role in electing bishops, and on and on. The Vatican, at various points, has warned the Germans not to go too far, not to get nuts, not to get ahead of the teaching of the Universal Church. Most recently, the Synodal Way has recommended a new form of governance for the German Church, so it would no longer be run just by bishops, but by a joint body, sort of the bishops and laity. The Vatican has sent a stern letter to the Germans telling them, you can't do that, you can't do anything that undercuts Episcopal authority. At every critical juncture, basically, when the Vatican has tried to put on the brakes, the German bishops have said, you know what, uh, thanks for your input, that's really interesting, but well, we're going to go our own way. You know, we're going to do this anyway. Now, what is interesting about this recent interview is that Francis you know, in the past, when the Vatican has said no to the Germans, it was some Vatican official, not the Pope himself. Well, in this case, it was the Pope himself. And what he said was that the German synodal path isn't really synodal, he said, because, number one, it has become ideological, which he described as very dangerous when a process like this becomes ideological. And number two, he said it is something made by elites. It's not really the sort of common people, he said, but this is actually being cooked up by a kind of elite class of what you might call professional Catholics. Now, that was certainly the most critical thing that Pope Francis has said about this process. What it leaves unanswered, however, is the Pope actually going to do anything? Because as I say, up to this point, every time the Vatican has tried to throw up a red light, the Germans have just blown through the intersection anyway. The question now, is Francis going to start writing tickets? Is he going to start pulling bishops over and telling them, look, if you want to keep your job, you can't do that, right? I mean, in other words, will there be some attempt to exercise papal authority 
to halt this process. We don't know. We will see. But certainly the interview would raise at least the question mark as to whether Francis may be getting to a point where he's ready to do something like that. We will see. All right, third up this week, the Orlandi investigations. This is, of course, Emmanuel Orlandi is, of course, the 15-year-old daughter of a father who worked as a kind of minor official in the prefecture of the papal household in the 1970s and 80s. The family had an apartment on Vatican grounds right near the Swiss Guard barracks, actually. And she grew up in the Vatican. In June 1983, she went missing. And ever since, what has happened to her has been the subject of, you know, a thousand and one different conspiracy theories, from whether she was abducted by the the KGB to try to pressure John Paul to dial down his anti-communist rhetoric in the 1980s, or whether it was the Roman mob, or whether it was some secret sex ring in the Vatican, or whatever, there have been, as I say, a kind of endless profusion of theories about what happened. Recently, of the fate of Emmanuel Orlandi was the subject of a four-part Netflix series called Vatican Girl, which once again brought the case back to the forefront. The Vatican, or at least the Vatican's promoter of justice, Alessandro Didi, recently announced that the Vatican would open an investigation. After 40 years, the Vatican would open an investigation to try to find out exactly what the Vatican knew, when it knew it, to, to sort of study all the archives, investigate all the witnesses, at least those who are still around, and come clean in terms of everything the Vatican can possibly contribute to a resolution of what happened to this girl. Two other developments this week, I think both of which remind us of why the Orlandi case remains such an ide fix, such an obsession here in Italy. One, there is an Italian rapper very popular rapper by the name of Fedez, who got himself into some hot water this week. Now, I need to note that Fedez, from the beginning, has been a kind of controversial figure here in Italy. He's kind of an equal opportunity bigot. Over the years, he has insulted gays, right-wing politicians, the Carabinieri, the Catholic Church, soccer teams, and pretty much everybody else you can think of. And this has never gotten anybody terribly upset because you know, because he kind of goes after everybody. You can't get on him for having a beef with any one particular group, right? And normally when he says something outrageous, it kind of just kind of rolls off people's shoulders. This week, however, Italian public opinion came down on him like a ton of bricks because he was taking part in a podcast in which the Orlandi case came up. A journalist who was on it, Gianluigi Nuzzi, started talking about all the unresolved question marks and mysteries surrounding Orlandi's disappearance. At one point, Fedez said, well, can I just say one thing? They never found her. And then started cackling wildly, a kind of fit of manufactured hysterical laughter, which I think was supposed to sort of be a send-up of the Italian press and the way the Italian press is always claiming to have some new bombshell revelation that never quite lives up to the hype. However, the takeaway in public opinion was you've got a family, the Orlandi family, that for 40 years has been in agony 
trying to know what happened to this girl, and he's out there laughing at their suffering. It did not go well for Fedez, and he was very quickly forced to call Emmanuel Orlandi's brother, Pietro, who has dedicated his life to the search for truth about his sister, and apologize. Second development is that this week, the Orlandis, in addition to family members and lawyers representing two other Roman girls whose fate is also unresolved. One is a young girl by the name of Marella Gregory, another teenager who went missing at the same time as Emanuela Orlandi. The other is a 21-year-old Roman girl by the name of Simonetta Cesaroli, who was murdered. She was stabbed to death in 1990, and her murder has never been solved. By the way, she was stabbed to death in the place where she worked, an office, which is about a three-minute walk from my wife and I's house in Rome. It's right near the Piazza Mazzini. Now, there, has been, there have been suggestions over the years that the Orlandi and the Gregory cases might be linked. There's been no suggestion that I'm aware of that the Cesaroni case is linked, except in the sense that it's another young Roman girl who, whose fate has never been explained, right? In any event, the family and lawyer for all three of those, those young Italian women met this week with the leadership of both of the houses of the Italian parliament, that is the Chamber of Deputies and the Italian Senate. The leaders have agreed to open a parliamentary inquest that will run parallel to the Vatican investigation so that the idea is that simultaneously both the Vatican and the Italian government will be doing their utmost to try to turn over every stone to find out what they knew when they knew it and to try to produce everything that can be said about the fate, not just of Orlandi, but also these other two young women. As ever, we will see what comes out of this, but I think the takeaway is this. If you want to know why Emanuela Orlandi is number one on the list of the jolly, that is the unresolved mysteries, among Italians think about the most, talk about the most, care about the most. It's not the geopolitics. It's not the celebrity factor. It's not the element of sex that may or may not run through it. At the end of the day, it's the family. The Orlandi family has never let this country forget. And in a culture here in Italy in which family isn't just everything, it's the only thing. <laughs> The, the specter of a family that has been struck by unimaginable pain and grief, that's the engine that drives the train. The lesson for the Vatican is this story ain't going away until you can convince the Italian public that you've told it everything you know. All right, fourth up this week, the Vatican trial. This, of course, is the trial of the century in which 10 different defendants, including for the first time a cardinal, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, have been charged with various forms of financial crime related to a spectacularly failed $400 million real estate deal in London that the Vatican got involved with. This week, the court, in its 45th hearing since this trial began a couple of years ago, the court ruled on which witnesses are going to be called that the defense had requested. They ruled that the Pope himself is not going to be called to testify. The Cardinal Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Pietro Paterlin, may or may not 
be called. They reserved judgment on that. They did allow that the sustituto, the substitute, the number two official in the Secretary of State, basically the Pope's chief of staff, Venezuelan Archbishop Edgar Peña Parra, he will be called as a witness. Now, before we get to the significance of Peña Parra, let me say that from a soap opera point of view, the big disappointment, I suppose, out of this ruling is that Francesca Immacolata Chalqui will actually not be appearing again before the trial. She gave some testimony a couple of weeks ago. She was supposed to appear again on February 16th, but the court ruled that that's not necessary because she and the other woman who testified, Genevieve Chieffri, essentially canceled each other out. Basically, these are two women who have been advising the star witness for the prosecution, an Italian Monsignor by the name of Alberto Perlasca. When they testified in January, they gave wildly contradictory versions of what they said to Perlasca, the advice they gave him, so forth and so on. They both kind of made a spectacle out of things. And the presiding judge of the Vatican Tribunal, Giuseppe Pignatoni, although he didn't quite use this word, basically invoked the classic Italian term, basta, enough, okay, that's enough. We're not going to hear from either of these people anymore. By the way, a footnote about Genevieve Cieffri. She has presented herself, and Perlaska at the trial presented her as a former agent of the Italian intelligence service, basically the Italian version of the CIA. This week, the Italian intelligence service put out a statement saying, she never worked for us. This is just completely not true. They said at one point she was giving us information. She was, in effect, a volunteer informant. But she was never on our payroll. She was never an official of the intelligence service. So turns out that Genevieve Cheffrey was sort of channeling her inner George Santos and inflating her resume. Big surprise. All right, those two pieces are off the board. Peña Parra, however, is going to be called to testify, and here's what makes this interesting. Two years ago, in 2021, right before the trial started, Peña Parra wrote a memo for investigators about the, the dynamics that led up to the London deal. Now, that memo was leaked to the Italian press, published by the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. The Vatican has never confirmed it, but it's also never denied it, most observers take it at face value. And in that memo, Peña Parra reportedly described a mechanism inside the Secretary of State in which lower-level officials, both clergy and lay, basically had a system for forcing the superiors, that is, the substitute and the cardinal secretary of state, forcing their hand, presenting them with fate accompli, telling them, look, you have to sign this right now, and if you don't, we're going to lose a ton of money. Or, this has all been taken care of. Your signature is just a formality. Please do it. And so forth and so on. In other words, Peña Parra said that the whole system was designed to prevent superiors from asking critical questions. Specifically on the London deal, he blamed Perlaska. He said every time he asked Perlaska for information, he got misleading or incomplete answers. And he said at one point, Perlaska provided him with two documents that Perlaska had already signed 
without asking for either the permission of Pena Para or Paroline, which if true, would actually be a crime. Now, all of that would seem to undercut the credibility of Perlaska, which would be a big blow for the prosecution, since most of their indictment rests on the strength of his testimony. If Pena Parta repeats all of that in open court, well, I wouldn't call it the beginning of the end of the prosecution case, but it would certainly be a significant blow. We will see. All right, finally, this week, I want to direct you to a website other than Crooks for once in my life. If you go on Google and type in Cooks with Collars, again, that is Cooks with Collars, and Allentown, Pennsylvania, it will take you to the website of what I think is the most creative, the most brilliant, and the most delicious annual fundraising exercise anywhere in the Catholic world, and that is the Cooks with Collars competition in the Diocese of Allentown, where priests are invited to submit videos in which they cook their favorite dishes. These are put on the website, and then people vote for their favorites, and the way they vote is by making donations to Catholic charities for projects at these parishes. And so far this year, it has raised more than $50,000. Almost 800 people have voted. There are, I believe, 44 separate entries. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you, I love this thing. This is its third edition. It began in 2021. My personal favorite this year, by the way, is the entry from Most Blessed Sacrament Parish in Bali, Pennsylvania, where the pastor is Father Richard Rick James. Yes, I'm not making this up. His name is Rick James. And if your mind leaps to Super Freak, you and I are on the same wavelength. Anyway, he presented a video in which he cooks rigatoni alla norcina, one of my favorite Italian pasta dishes in honor of Most Blessed Sacrament. I actually made it for lunch on Sunday. My wife, Elise, and I had it. It will probably be her last big Italian meal before she heads off for Africa today. So, you know, hopefully she is adequately fortified. Anyway, three quick things about the Cooks with Collars competition. One, it was born as a result of the COVID pandemic because parishes could no longer host their in-person festivals anymore. It is therefore a classic example of Catholic pastoral creativity, taking limits and making not just lemonade, but limoncello. Second, at a time when the Catholic priesthood is not exactly drowning in positive PR, these videos show priests in the best possible light as fun, smart, interesting, compelling, authentically human personalities. It's just brilliant. And third, it contradicts the public narrative about Catholicism. If all you had to go on vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic Church, was what's in the newspapers, what's on blogs, what's on TV. You would think that we are an angry debating society that is constantly torn apart by scandal and internal political divisions. Well, look, scandals and divisions are part of the Catholic story, but anybody who actually lives and moves in the church knows that's not the whole thing. Most of the time, being Catholic is actually a blast, and most parishes are warm, loving, fun places to be. This competition captures that reality and lifts it up for all of us to see. So, God bless you in the Diocese of Allentown, Pennsylvania. And one of these years, one of these years, you're going to find the courage of your convictions, and you are going to allow me 
to enter as a special celebrity guest cook, I will produce my signature pasta a la Amatrachana, and then, folks, we will see what's what. All right, that is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. Again, that is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. Watch us this week for Elisa's special coverage of the Pope's trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. We'll be back next week, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. We will talk to you again soon.